All right, you guys, it's been like two or three weeks, right? So, so what we're talking about, big picture, is reality in Jesus Christ. As Bonhoeffer says, I'm going I'm to return to you know, what helped us launch, Colossians 1. And uh, Bonhoeffer's statement that there aren't, there aren't multiple realities, right? We don't, we don't live in a multiverse. We live in a universe. There's one reality, and there's not many ways of access to reality. There's just one. So it means to know God, we know God in Jesus Christ in a sharing of his sonship, right? Um, he opens up, or we might say, you know, uh, Jesus Christ puts on our hearts and lips, on the hearts and lips of the church, that holy name of Father, Son, and Spirit. We learn that in Jesus Christ. So we know God there. We come to know ourselves, uh, what it means to be authentically human and what it means to be inauthentically human, right? Both um, in, in Jesus Christ coming near and, and us discerning our truly authentic human faces and his face. And then thinking about the world. So we're, we, got a, we got a lot to do. To, I'm going I'm to steal from Father Aaron a little bit. We'll see. But um, I want to I revisit um, and pick up where we left off in terms of humanity, what it means to discern our humanity in Jesus Christ and what it means to bear God's image, humanly bear God's image. Um, so let's do that for about 25 minutes or however long we need, 30 minutes, and then we'll go into knowledge of the world. So I'm on, I'm on page... Well, I guess it would be point three. I don't have page numbers in our, in our notes on um, our second portion. Let me just get a running start and pick up some momentum. Does everyone, Al- Allison, do you have those last times? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So let me, let me just revisit a little bit. We picked up right at the top, and we talked about Genesis, and Genesis 1 in particular, and that cadence, that, that um, repetition that you see in Genesis 1, how God makes, and God makes according to kinds, right? So God makes creepy crawly things according to kinds, and flying things, and bovine things, and feline things, and canine things according to their kinds. So the referent for all those is, you know, the referent for a, a worm is a worm. That's how you, that's how you know what a, what a worm is. And then the, the big literary takeoff, because according to its kind, is seven times in about five verses. And then the big, the big contrast there is, and then God made humanity, like male and female. He made them according to his image. So what we don't get is we don't get according to their kind. I or Madeline or Allison, you, you don't go to the mirror self-referentially and discern what it means to be a human being. It's, it's absolutely impossible. You'll get an idolatrous understanding there. <clears throat> in other words, you'll either think you're a worm or a glorified primate or an aspiring lord yourself or somewhere in the middle, but it doesn't matter where you end up. You're going to be wrong there because we discern ourselves relative to God always. Now, the thing that we talked about is everything in Genesis, right, everything that has to do with being human has to do with bearing God's image. Humans don't have. It's not like, oh, this is part of God's image and this, but not this. To be human is to bear God's image. Everything about you is image-bearing. In Genesis, when God pronounces that he makes us according to his image, this is pre-incarnation, right? So there's categorically, qualitatively, nothing about God that's human. So the big question is, if the true measure of a human is God, and only God, 
and there's nothing about God pre-incarnate, right, that's human, how do we begin to think about that? And so Paul teaches us that. When we go to first, or Colossians 1, Paul talks about Jesus Christ, right, being the true image of God. So what we get is the true measure of a human is God as human, right? That's the point, God as human. Jesus Christ is the visible image, the icon, the sacrament, if you will, of the invisible God. Not the pre-incarnate Son, the incarnate Son, right? Jesus Christ, the incarnate one. He bears God's image and he does it humanly. He's the firstborn of all creation. Um, later in Colossians, what you get there is, you know, Paul says he's the firstborn from the dead, later in Colossians 1, but, he, but here up front in verse 15 he says, He's the firstborn of creation, which has to do with not birth order, but status. He's before all things, the word, above all things, hierarchically, as the Lord. <clears throat> and even as all things are made by and through and for um, the word, human beings are fashioned as human beings as an anticipation of who Jesus Christ will be. It's awesome. It's just awesome. So, so the issue is, at the Incarnation, the Son of God doesn't just inherit an already extant humanity and just kind of plug in along the, along the genetic stream. He is the ground and interpretive paradigm for, for all of humanity. And so humanity isn't autonomous. Humanity isn't self-explanatory. Humanity is explained in Jesus Christ and, to be and made to be conformed to him. That's what we've been talking about. <clears throat> And I have that quote um, almost near the bottom, about 80% down from Irenaeus. That's where we stop. He says, wonderfully, in times long past, he's talking about Genesis. It was said that man was created after the image of God, but, he was not act but it was not actually shown. Not yet, or not, certainly not fully, let's say that. For the word was as yet invisible. He's thinking about Colossians, obviously. After whose image man was created, when, however, the word of God became flesh, he showed forth the image truly since he became himself what was his image. He doesn't become what's our image. We are conformed to his image. Just, just, just awesome. So, you know, you, we did a lot of talking about Gnosticism at Fully Alive and things like this. This, this is, well, Irenaeus' quote is from his anti-Gnostic writings, right? This has everything to do with thinking non-gnostically about the human person, but also Jesus isn't a reference, Jesus isn't referent to us, right? We're always referent to him. So it's a huge thing. So what I want to do now is start to talk a little bit about what does it look like to discern our face in the face of Jesus Christ? We, we've talked already about, you know, we discern the face of the Father in the face of the Son. But it's also true, as he's the divine self-exposition of God and man, we discern our humanness in his face as well. So let me, let me read this little last part, and then I just, I want to discuss this more than I want to um, lecture on it. <clears throat> Bonhoeffer, referring back to what we did a while ago, says that the reality of God finds its answer solely in the name of Jesus Christ. Yea and amen to that. Same thing is true of humanity what it means to be human, that big pressing question that we, we're falling over more and more all the time. The answer is there, only there, always there. 
The God-man is the true revealer of both God and humanity. He discloses not only God's self to us, but our self to us, so that knowledge of God is the necessary context and content for self-knowledge. So think about this a little bit, you guys. On the one hand, we got something like Rene uh, Descartes. I think, therefore I am, right? So you could, you could think like that, and that's how the Western, Western culture has for a while. I think, therefore I am. It's a highly rationalist understanding, right? But it grounds my personhood. My personhood is conditioned on my ability to think the way I do. And then my self-understanding conditions who God may or may not be, who I will allow God to be or not. And I will, and I will, and I will confirm or reject God's godness according to the conditions that I set. Now we've moved from that, right? So we don't usually do I think, therefore I am. We do something more like in our culture. I feel, therefore I am. And that's not to have a low view of the effect of life, but it doesn't, it's not the revealer of God or the, or the human person. So I feel, therefore I am. I feel this way, therefore this must be true. This must be the, the ground of my personhood and my humanity. And it's also the condition under which God can be God. If God doesn't conform to the way I feel, I have to reject him or refashion him in my image or something like that. <laughs> So we have that type of thing. It couldn't get worse, right? That's as bad as it gets. But it's not, it's not the case either that we say something like, well, God knows God's self, and then I'm over here, right? I know myself, and we just kind of meet in the middle. Hi, God, glad to meet you. Let me tell you who I am. You'll tell me who you are. It's not the case at all. God's self-understanding grounds God's self-disclosure. God knows himself. You know how pastorally important that is? You can only... You, you, you want to hope when you're, when you're having interpersonal reactions, interactions rather, that, that the one you're, you're engaging with knows themselves. To the extent they don't, they portray a false self, right? God knows God's self. It's the ground of God's self-disclosure. But even more, God's self-disclosure grounds our self-knowledge. God reveals God's self to us. Stunning stuff. That's, that's maybe the, the, one of the biggest places in, in modern Western Christianity where we're in trouble. <laughs> we're in big trouble. So let's talk about that. There's, you know, we could talk about that for a year. We'll talk about it for 25 minutes. Let's do that. How does God do this? Or what are some of the big, the big ways in which he does that? I want to get at um, what's the difference What's, what are the kind of the qualifications? How can we think about what it means to be a human and what it means to be uh, real categories of personhood? That's one. Then I want to think about what does it mean, like, what does it mean to be a, a, a person possessed of the ability to think, the mind, or, the, or affections, so on and so forth. How are those revealed in Jesus Christ? Make sense? Let's go over to the next page. We'll do that in a minute. I just want to give you a couple ideas, and then we'll loop back and discuss this. <clears throat> Calvin's quote is great, second one down. It's certain that humanity never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he's first looked upon God's face. We look upon God's face and, and God reveals. It's the mirror of self-understanding. So Jesus Christ, I'm down a little bit, like those two paragraphs, is the true measure of a human who therefore reveals the truth about humanity. He's the light of men, shines in our hearts of darkness. So, so let's, let's think about this and so we can set up a conversation here. 
we're talking east of Eden. We live decidedly east of Eden, right? So in, if you flee from this light, what you do is you forsake the ground and goal of human existence. I mean, it, to, forsake, to forsake the light of the world means that you can, you'll, you'll never come to an understanding of yourself, right? Which is a huge dimension of what it means to be saved, set to rights. Now think about what we do in post-modernity. We run off into the far country because we usually think, I certainly can't, if we're good Freudians at least, I can never come to self-knowledge in God's presence, right? I have to flee, I have to, I have to learn in flight from the holy other who I am. But we often think that in terms of human relationships too. Like I need to go off into the far country, learn myself so that I can engage with other human beings. What you see with Jesus Christ all the time, right? The true authentic human being without impediment set to right, fully alive to the, to the divine other, fully alive to the human other, set to rights. And he helps us think about what it means to, to relationally discern ourselves. If we flee from ourselves, all we can do is go off into the far country and continue to rein, try to reinvent ourselves, but it'll always be a, one or another version of a false self. It'll, it has to be. If, if this is true, that we were made by God for God, right? And that, that's, the, that's the most basic and magnificent thing you can say about a, a human person is that then all we can ever do in flight from God is create a false self. We might say this, to receive the light then is to have the light, the Lord Jesus and the power of the Spirit, penetrate the very springs of our personality, right? That's uncomfortable and lovely. All the shadowy, calcified places of our lives, right? life-giving, life-transforming presence so that we can learn who we are by learning whose we are. By the way, I mean, that, that's magnificent when you think about it relative to God, but that's also basic to human existence. How many of you, you know, lobbied to join a family or you're just born into a family, right? You didn't say, I like this one, I'll join. You are planted, right? And you learn to, you don't join by loving, you learn to love by being, right? You learn who you are there. Human personhood is always relationally discerned. It's always that. But we really see it here. We learn whose we are by learning, or we learn who by whose. This doesn't happen by moral achievement. That's, that's exhausting. We don't learn it by psychological introspection. That's not a bad thing, necessarily. God helps us descend into the self, right? <clears throat> but we don't learn the self that way, apart from him. We don't learn it by therapeutic technique. We learn our true self in the presence of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit, and we discern our authentic human face in the face of God. Now, what does he do? To be, a, to be sinful, by definition, means that in flight from God, the heart is turned in upon the self, right? Self-love, self-lordship. And self-love is tricky, right? Because it, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, always, it doesn't always look pretty. Self-love and self-hatred self are not polar opposites or about that far apart, like it whipsawed, right? To the extent we think you're aspiring emperor, all, all someone has to do is look at you cross-eyed and then I'm scum of the earth, right? We go, we go there real fast. They're very, very close. But the heart turned in upon itself, right? 
the cramped confines there. What the Lord Jesus Christ does, actually, this is Galatians 2.20. It's one of the first verses you probably learned as a kid. I'm crucified with Christ. Not I live, but he lives in me, right? He doesn't come to evacuate ourself. What he does is he actually opens up the self so that the circumference of our self isn't tight and cramped like this, we being the only resident there. He opens up the circumference of ourself so that our self is discerned relative to his holy self. That has everything to do, by the way, with God being triune, right? We're not single, single persons don't know themselves that way. God's tri-personalness is mirrored there. In the power of the Spirit, in the presence of Jesus Christ, the self is opened up and, and, and the heart turns out this way, right? Holy self-forgetfulness, if you will, not self-preoccupation at least, and comes to know who God is and we're healed that way. We come to actually know ourselves. Does that make sense? What I'd love to do is just talk through a couple of these categories, like, you know, what it, would, what, what it, what it means, what it would mean. Um, where do we want to go first? Let's talk about human emotions. That sounds like a good place. Right? To be a human person <clears throat> is to be possessed of an emotional life, right? Now, let's, let's go to our Lord, because we say he, he manifests that to us. Does Jesus Christ have the full range of human emotions? Now, you know how we often do, right? Our, we, we tend to hierarchize human emotions. Joy, you know, love to the extent love's an emotion and there's an emotive content to it for sure. All that, those are good emotions. Disappointment, grief, sadness, anger, those are bad, right? We wanna be really careful with that. Does Jesus Christ manifest the whole realm of human emotions? Does Jesus Christ get angry? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Is he a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief? Is he just happy as I'll get out? The bearing the full measure of the joy of the Lord? Yes, all of these things. Does Jesus ever fear? Good, I'm, most of you said yes. It's fun to ask those questions in classrooms because you see. <laughs> but that, but that, gets right, that gets right at it, right? So think about this. Um, I just taught on this a couple days ago and you know, many of my students were like, we couldn't say that, why? Because the, the, the assumption is that's a bad emotion, right? So you're left alone in your fear, is what that means. God, go back to the garden. First byproducts of the fall, right? God's first response to the fall is, where are you? Just beautiful, where are you? I'm running from you, of course. I'm afraid and I'm ashamed. And so I'm hiding from you. Emotionally, the first two big byproducts of, of, of the fall are fear and shame. Could you imagine if God came to save us and care for us, but he never addressed fear? And then we have, a, we have a faithful high priest who can sympathize with us, not in our fear, right? Only empathize maybe, but not sympathize. Jesus Christ bears the full realm of human emotion. Now, next question. Is that a manifestation of human emotion or divine emotion? Yes. Yes. yes, I mean, how important is that, right? To see me is to see my father, except my father is a stoic, emotionalist being behind my back. He not only does love, doesn't love us, he can't, so I came to do what he couldn't, 
No way. Jesus Christ bears and manifests the emotional life of God. And he does it humanly, right? So if he is at one and the same time, think how amazing this is. He's the, the divine self-exposition of God and humanity at one and the same time. Are the tears of Jesus the tears of God? Is the joy of Jesus the joy of God? Yes. Now what does that mean for us? We have a full realm, our, our emotional sphere capabilities in, in terms of the scope are coextensive with Jesus Christ and God's. That's part of what it means to bear God's image. We discern this in Jesus Christ. Now also what it means is this. We tend to think that there's these bad emotions and they need to be either eradicated. Like, you know, I used to get angry a lot before I was a Christian. Now I never do. Now I'm afraid, right? <laughs> I'm afraid. Does your, does your anger need to be sanctified? In fact, right, be angry and sin not. That's in the imperative, by the way. God commands you to be angry. To live in the, if, if you can't get angry in this world, your heart's leprous, right? You, you, you've, got a, you've got a calcified heart. But do so in such a way that it manifests the image of God and is redemptive, right? So then you want to start to ask the questions. Why am I angry? How am I angry? To what end am I angry, right? Not that I'm angry. That's not the problem. So you have that. Right? But what about, we don't tend to think over on this side, insofar as we're thinking like this, well, what about love? Love is always self-validating. No, it's not. Are there corrupted ways in which people truly, right, without intended malfeasance, they love, but they love poorly. Can you love in a clinging, clutching way, an overweening way, a way that makes people feel suffocated? Can you do all those things? For sure. The whole spectrum of our emotional life needs to be redeemed. None of it needs to be eradicated because that would be a shrinking of human personhood. But it all needs to be redeemed. And Jesus Christ shows the whole realm of human emotion. So what did it look like? As we are conformed to Jesus Christ, who's the authentic human, right? We are moving toward human authenticity. We're not becoming more human. We're, becoming, we're moving from inauthentic manifestations of our humanity to authentic, right? You following me? Now, when we do that, are we moving away from the image of God or toward it? In Jesus Christ, toward it. To move into authentic human emotional life isn't to move away from the image of God, but into the image of God. That's the glory of the incarnation. It's so magnificent. What is Jesus Christ doing? Peter. This is what it looks like to be authentically Peter in conformity to me, right? And by the way, to whatever extent that's not the case, this is what it looks like, Peter. Even, even your love needs to be sanctified in me, right? Even your joy needs to be sanctified, let alone, you know, this, that, and the other thing. You guys want to say anything there? I think that's, I think that's a helpful thing to think about, yeah. Um, can you talk about, like, what do you feel like sanctified really looks like? I feel like that one I struggle with. Yeah. Um, especially in the climate where, like, so many people are yeah. Let me tell. Yeah. Let me talk about a couple of those. Let, let's do fear and shame. Okay. okay? <clears throat> now, now. By the way, all of this, like, like love, for instance. There's a volitional 
element to love. Love isn't just emotion. Could you imagine if it was? Sweetie, this, sorry, but on the train home today, my heart just went all a flitter. What can I do? But people talk like that, right? Love isn't just a choice either, right? It's not just volition without emotion. Like Paul says, if I give myself even over to be martyred, but I don't have love in the emotive content, clang, clanging symbol. Well, what's Paul talking about there? The way in which God loves. God is unrelenting in his love and it's full of pathos. It's just magnificent. So let's talk about fear and shame. At let's just go to Gethsemane, yeah. right? Um, has, not only has Jesus not um, been uh, avoided fear, he's felt fear in the capacity that we never have and in the force that we never have because he never capitulated or relented to it. In the, in the great day, when, when we're giving account for things, I'm convinced about 90% of the time we're going to be, why did you do this? Because I was afraid. Because I was afraid. You make the worst decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And I was looking for an outlet and looking to release a safety valve there. Jesus Christ is in Gethsemane, right? The text says he's, he's, he, he's falling down. So he's not doing this. You know, placid and serene. His knees are buckling. Right? Why? What's tomorrow morning? I'm going to drink to the dregs all the disorder and chaos of a fallen world. That's a big day. <laughs> um, three times, right? Can you, can you pray with me to his friends? Right? Can, I'm so distressed. Can you pray with me? Sure, but, right? Um, and three times, Father, this is, where he calls, this is where he calls the Father Abba. Dear Father. Right? If this cup can be passed from me, if it can be taken, let it be so. But even so, your will be done. I will, I, will, I will submit myself here, and I'm overturning all of this. Like, are you really a monster? Right? That's what's going on in Genesis. Right? Does God really have, does my father have my best interests in mind? It seems like a pretty good context, Gethsemane, to question that. Jesus is not questioning that. I am distressed. Right? I'm entering this humanly. I am distressed. Um, and even here, I'm wide open to you, Father. I'm not closing down. I'm not in flight. I'm wide open to you. I'm feeling this, and I'm pressing in. It's so, it's so lovely. And think about shame a little bit, you guys. Um, boy, what do we want to say here? The Roman soldiers beat Jesus on the morning of Good Friday, right? Um, and they, they say, they, they strip him, right? So when Jesus is stripped, right, he doesn't take off his tunic and he's got on, you know, white long johns from his ankles to his neck. He's naked. Because it, is it meaningful theologically? We were naked and ashamed. He's entering into everything and he's touching it and transforming it and redeeming it. Now, if you're a Roman soldier whose job is to torture people, that, that doesn't do... That doesn't do a lot for your personality, right? They're probably drunk, more than likely. And they begin to beat him about his body, right? What do you think's going on there? He's naked and ashamed before his tormentors. How are they mocking him? Use your imagination, right? Or is that a part of it? Jesus is naked and ashamed. Now, if, most of you are college age, right? Is that a Title IX? <laughs> At the door, my classmates you tied me up. It's horrible. Jesus Christ has, to the dregs, to the depths, entered into the dimensions of our fear and shame. Right? Not taking it for himself, despising the shame, 
Not denying it, repudiating it. Right? Tells us a lot about what it looks like to be sons and daughters of the Father who live. You guys, we've never, we've never known a full second yet of what it looks like human existence utterly devoid of fear and shame. One day, can you, are we going to shriek for joy when that's utterly released and you take your first breath and say, it's gone. It's always there at some level, right? It's gone. And the full liberality of the Lord is stunning, right? Um, boy, you guys, we could talk about so much here. Um, let me do just a couple more things, right? A big, a big part of what it, what it looks like to be a human person. I want to go back to that, that phrase, a human person, in a minute. But is emotional capacities, right? Now, at one sense, you can say, well, goodness, I'm come over to my house and I'll show you that my cat has emotional capacity, right? And, by the way, effective capacity. Like, my cat knows how to solve problems according to its kind and all that. You probably wouldn't want my cat to come in and teach you. That would be not good. But the cat has emotional capacities, but unlike ours in the sense that what, what is our, what is our or, or intellectual capacities, what is our intellect to do? Our mind is to be conformed to the mind of Jesus Christ, right? An inauthentic human mind, no matter what the level of its capacities and capabilities, right, that isn't conformed to the mind of Jesus Christ is an inauthentic human mind. It's a true and full human mind, but just isn't living into the telos God has for it. For us, for our, for our minds to be sanctified, we're actually, like we, like we say at the Lord's table, right? So he can dwell in us and we can dwell in him. Well, a part of that is so that my mind isn't just informed. I'm not just trying to, at distance, gather data about God. I'm actually living in and participating in the very mind of Jesus Christ, who humanly knows his Father, right? No one knows the Father but the Son, the incarnate Son humanly, so that we can humanly know God. Creator-creature distinction, it's still there, right? Um, we're never, we're, we don't become Christ, but in and through and with Jesus Christ, he opens up the very life, bosom of his Father, and we come to know God. That's what it means to become wise, Christianly, to have an authentic mind and what it looks like to exercise an authentic human mind. Does that make sense? We learn ourselves in Jesus Christ. He mirrors us to us. It's just magnificent. What else do you guys want to talk about there? <clears throat> Can I suggest something? Yeah. I've said a few times human personhood, right? Yeah. Now, think about this. Are there non-human persons? <laughs> How about... Thank you. Let's do it. Let's do it. So, so are there, now, prior to the incarnation, right? Jesus Christ becomes human, yeah. right? The word became flesh, the word became human. Are there non-human persons? How about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, right? Okay. So, and they're non-created. Are there created, non-divine persons, non-human? Yes, angels, right? Oh, are there created human persons, right? Yes, us. We're utterly unique that way. We're not God. We're not angels. And by the way, in, in terms of that latter thing, most of it has to do with the body. 
the body, the body, so important. Um, there are categories of humanness and then there are categories of legitimate ones and categories of personhood. They're not exactly the same. Jesus Christ teaches us what it means to be human, but he doesn't teach us what it means to be a woman. And now our culture goes nuts with that, right? So I could say, you know, I'm a goy. I'm Nordic and British. What can I learn about being a human from a Jew? Right? It, because we do stuff like that. We're very tribal like that. What, what, is, what, what does he have to do with me? Allison, you could say, how am I supposed to learn what it means to be human from a man? Right? So we want to just take this straight on, man. It's wonderful stuff to talk about. Jesus Christ teaches us what it means to be an authentic human. Now, what he does in terms of categories of personhood and what we learn in the gospel, take Galatians 2, what? 3.28. There's no male nor female. There's no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. That's a social category, but you get the point, right? So what is God saying? Jesus came among us to make us all androgynous and in terms of an ethnicity, just a, just a nondescript soup. No, not at all. But what he has done is in Jesus Christ, these things get affirmed. They even get celebrated, right? You can celebrate that. You, every, everyone should be really excited to say, I am, you know, I did my ancestry.com and I am, and this, I'm so glad about this. But what happens is they get relativized relative to what and whom? The incarnate Jesus Christ and what it means to be human. Now, what if you take a, an authentic category of personhood and you make it the ground of your humanity? Welcome to modernity, <laughs> right? Um, I, am, I, am, I am a man and my masculinity grounds my humanity. I can't quite discern the humanity of my, my female sisters. Oh, goodness gracious, right? Bad, bad news. Mm -hmm. These are categories of personhood. They're wonderful. They're not categories of humanity. Does that make sense? Um, <clears throat> okay, when I first was thinking this through, I was kind of thinking about it the other direction. Because like if, if the category of personhood is actually broader than the category of humanity, right? Because there are not human persons. Yeah, we're talking about human persons, I know, but yeah. And then, so... <laughs> They're indelible ways that God made you and you will take into eternity. All the tribes, right? He loves it. So, right. you, you know, what, you know, my Nordicness, I'm going to be Nordic forever. God loves it, mm -hmm. right? My maleness, I'm going to be male forever. Mm -hmm. I don't get raised, get raised into new life androgynous. Right. Right. So it's a, it's a big deal. It's, it's a category of personhood. Um, that is really, really, really important. So think about the incarnation. Jesus Christ is human, but he comes. Does he, does he take upon himself an ethnicity? Mm -hmm. He does, right? He takes all the genetic background of that ethnicity, the whole shot. Does he take a Y chromosome? Yeah. Now let's think about that. What does he do in taking a Y? Why is that important? He takes a Y chromosome. He's a man. Now, man. Our culture is always thinking about power dynamics and all that, right? So that, that can be offensive. This is, this is what he's doing. He's taking that sacramental sexedness and he is affirming the male-female binary complement, right? 
females come from the man. The first female comes from the male. After that, all people come, says Paul, right? All people come from the woman. Even God, even God. What does he do? He sanctifies it. He exalts it, right? The, the eternal son of God through whom all things were made is a, conceive, a, a fertilized egg attaching to a uterine wall in a specific person, a woman. Does he hallow that womb? Does he live in amniotic fluid? Does he travel birth canals? Does he, does he feed at, at a breast? Is God affirming the male-female binary? It's awesome. Is he now taking a bride for himself, because it's no better for the second Adam to be alone than the first, mm -hmm. and does he consider that bride, the church, his fullness? Ephesians 1. Male and female, he made them, Adam and Eve. Male and female, he remade them in the image of Christ, the image of God. Humanity reconstituted in Jesus Christ. The human image, which is, which is a reflection of the divine image, right? Which is so awesome. It's so awesome. Um, should we talk about the world? We have to, because we're... What are you thinking? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we ne there's never enough time, right? There's never enough time. <clears throat> Maybe someday I'll come back and we'll talk more about anthropology, but this is, this is just huge. This is just huge. As soon as humanity's running around in, in a bunch of tribalisms trying to discern themselves and their particularities, right. Peter, that's what we were just talking about, right? Whatever particularity it is, all we're going to do is we're going we're gonna, to... We're going to flub up categories of personhood and humanity, and it's always going to be divisive. We're never going to get to unity. Never going to do it. I wanted to ask about basic elements of personhood. Yeah. I was thinking about this in the context of God as a person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're gonna kill me. So, um, but you know, I don't want to try to make that mean. And I've talked about this with a few people, and they're like, "No, God's more than a person." And I'm like, "No, God's more than human. He's different than human." And I don't mean human and person is the same thing. Mm -hmm. God is a person. Um, and there's ways I understand relating to a person that are probably mostly based on. Mm -hmm. No, so much of that is really important. to think of God a little bit more like knowing somebody else, you know, in the last few years. I'm glad. Than I have before, which, you know, is that good or is that, I think it's good in a lot of ways, are the ways that I can limit. No, it's really good. And, you know, you can, you know a thing, a thing here, you take that word lightly, uh -huh. according to what it is. Right. And according to what it is, you seek to know it. Now, if I want to know about my bike. Mm -hmm. Well, I go about that very differently than if I want to know you, mm -hmm. right? If I, try to, if I try to know you like I try to know my bike, I will offend you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'll never get to know you. You're a person, right? Um, so the, the way you get to know a person um, is different than the way you get to know uh, what? 
uh, a rock formation if I'm a geologist. You put that under a microscope, you run tests on it. That's how you get to know a person's bunion, but not a person, right? So that has to be discerned there. It's really, really important. Um, we don't have a relationship with God like you have a relationship with this cup, whatever that would be. That would be, that would be to objectify God. You can't objectify. Well, if you do, you're making an idol of God. You're probably, you're probably really talking to your belly button and calling it God. You're just self-projecting, you know? But this is really important. God does transcend the human, for sure. Creator-creature distinction, right? But he doesn't transcend personhood. It's different. God's always person. Person, God doesn't display himself as a person, but behind personhood, he's something else. Right. Right, yucky. Yeah. Yucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is, is that because he is the definition of a person? Yes. Okay. Now we can talk about categories of human personhood, right? Mm-hmm. Now we can talk about ethnicity and all those things, which are wonderful. Again, they're wonderful. But they can't be, they can't be made criteria for humanness your categories of personhood. So think, for instance, I mean, Jesus took a Y chromosome, right? He became a human and a male, right? Now we could, if we had time, then we could say, well, we often talk about maybe the teachings on sexuality of Jesus, but what about the sexuality of Jesus? Is that a valid theological place? Oh, it's a wonderful thing to talk about. It's a wonderful thing to talk about. Jesus is a celibate, right? Our culture usually thinks that you can only reify your, your personhood by being sexually active according to whatever your emo- where, in whatever direction your emotions think you should take that. Patently false. It doesn't render false the pastoral issues there. People struggle with that. But that action and that objection renders it, it's, those aren't legitimate categories of personhood. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the world a little bit. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you know the reality in Jesus Christ? I'm not on the first page of your notes. I hope Aaron's late. <laughs> now remember, I have on the first page of your notes, I have Colossians 1, and I have that wonderful quote by Bonhoeffer, in which Colossians 1 says, right, uh, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, Rulers, authorities, all things were created through him, for him. Who's the first recipient of all of creation? Right? By the way, that's so much of Jesus' priesthood, right? He emerges, he emerges from the tomb, ascends to heaven, and in his priestly offering, it says, Father, I offer you the entire cosmos, made for me, sanctified by me. I offer it to you in your praise, right? <clears throat> in him, in him, all things hold together. Did you take the train yet? What's that? Did you take the train? I actually took a car today. Oh, okay. So thanks to the strike, one of the few uh, strikes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm In him, all things hold together so that he is preeminent in all things, all creaturely realities he's preeminent in, right? So Bonhoeffer goes in this, this next paragraph, and you've seen it already. In Jesus Christ, he says, the reality of God has entered into the reality of the world. And what that means is that we cannot speak rightly about either God or the world without speaking of Jesus Christ. 
Go back to Gnosticism. Can you speak rightly about the world without speaking of Jesus Christ? You're going to be a Gnostic. More than likely. But you're going to be wrong. Guaranteed. All things were made by him. He's the or- all things were made for him. He's the origin and aim of all things, right? So Bonhoeffer's awesome here. The reality of Jesus Christ embraces the reality of the world in itself. In a minute, we're going to talk, what, what, is, what does modernity do? What does the Enlightenment do? It actually rips heaven from earth. Now we've got it. We've got a two-tier cosmos, and the twain never meet, right? Now we've got a plane of human existence that, that has to be then inauthentic. And a notion of God, because notions of God doesn't go, don't go away. Those two are inauthentic. <clears throat> the reality of God embraces the reality of the world. The world has no independent reality of its own. So think about that. Is the world self-existent? If the world's possessed of that, right, a seity, you'd call that, that's a divine category. Is the world eternal? It has a beginning. It has a creator, right? It has a Lord. If the world isn't possessed of self-existence um, and eternality, the world is not self-explanatory. The world in itself isn't intelligible. So Christians would be, would, be, would be really wise to not think it is, because you, know, you, can, you can be a Freudian ubermenschen, right? I will just assert my will to power in the world. The world doesn't have any meaning in itself, but I'll foist it on there. Whoever has the most power gets to determine the world for us, right? But you know how many people walk around and say, the world, there, there's no intelligence, no foresight to it. That means there's no artistry to it. It's not going anywhere. It doesn't mean anything, and there's no purpose. Well, outside of Jesus Christ, it's actually true, unless you're going to be Nietzschean, but either one's really bad. The world is not intelligible in and of itself. It's just not that. So go back up to the top of the page. Let's think about this. What have we been saying? If we see the face of the Father in the face of the Son, and we discern our authentic human face in the face of the Son, we see and recognize the world in Jesus Christ too. Another way of saying that is we think sacramentally about the world. It's just a big old heavy, heavy laid Christology there. Jesus Christ unites in himself, think about this, deity, humanity, creator, creation. He became what he created without ceasing to be, the one by, through, and for whom all things were made. Time and eternity. Don't think about eternity as just a lot of time. Before all things were, God was, the eternal one. Eternity is the way God is with God's self, right? It's not, it's not a... It's not a temporal category. He comes to give eternal life in the now, the life of God. As I have always been with my Father in the power of the Spirit, the holy love that God is, I come to share with you. What then is eternal life? To know the Father and the one whom the Father has sent, and to know the Father and the one whom he has sent now in time. He brings time and eternity together, heaven and earth. What's going on then is Jesus Christ renders integrally, integral and intelligible the world, apart from which we're going to have one form or another of a dichotomous world, um, a disjointed world, whether it's platonic or whether it's enlightenment type of stuff, it's going to be all atomized and ripped apart. Or you might say it like this, Jesus Christ renders the, the universe the universe rather than a multiverse or a pluriverse. We live in a universe and, it, and it's a knowable one as the context for knowing the world is knowing God. 
Jesus reveals not many realities, but one, and not one reality with many ways of access, but one reality relative, known relative to him. Any outlook, Hans Borsma says this a lot, really good stuff, I think. Any outlook that fails to see and savor all things in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ in all things, isn't a truly Christian outlook on reality. Doesn't mean Christians can't have that outlook. It means it's not Christian. <laughs> Does that make sense? So think, think about this. Should I, should I see Jesus Christ in my marriage and commit my marriage to Jesus Christ? Should I raise my kids and see my kids in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ in my kids, right? Career, um, whatever, right? Charles Simeon, old, great Cambridge Anglican preacher used to say that, that's the skill of the Christian life. You see and you savor Jesus Christ in all things, all things in Jesus Christ. What that does, you guys, is it puts means and ends as they should be. And so all things that God gives are good gifts as they're purposed and enjoyed relative to the end they serve, knowledge and joy of God in Jesus Christ. If they're not, they become ends in themselves. Then we, we, lose, we lose sight of what they mean and what purpose they serve. Does that make sense? What happens when that, when that happens is we idolatrize, we, we make idols out of everything. Can you think of anything that you can't make an idol out of? Food, sleep, entertainment, work, sex, relationships, money, career. It's when these things become ends in themselves rather than means to an end, and we lose the ability to enjoy them or understand their, their origin or their, their, their meaning or their telos. Jesus Christ heals the world in this way. <clears throat> to contemplate the world in Jesus Christ is to gain true knowledge of both God and the world. To contemplate the world apart from Jesus Christ is to forfeit true knowledge of both God and the world. So think about this. What that doesn't leave a category for is, if I'm a Christian, I can't flee the world to know God. The God who reveals himself amidst the world won't allow me to do that. Does that make sense? I know God in the world. If I'm, if I'm let's say, you know, generally speaking, a secular, and I say, well, I care a lot about the world, I couldn't care a hoot about God. Guess what? You don't gain the world and forfeit God. You forfeit both. Mm -hmm. Whatever you're thinking the world is, you're wrong about it. This thing was made by God, for God, and has intelligibility and beauty and enjoyability only there. Only there. You lose them both. You don't gain one or the other. You lose them both. What do you guys want to say? Oh, sure. So John's theology, right? For God so loved the world in John 3, but 1 John 2 is if you love the world, the love of the Father isn't in you, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, the world in which God made all things good, right? That is, that is the world you wish to care about. What you need to discern is um, thing, things have been corrupted and polluted, right? But there's no entity in the world that wasn't made good. Doesn't mean all of them are going to be good in the end, right? right. Satan doesn't. Satan isn't redeemed. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but it means God made all things good. We embrace the world that way, and we live in the tension of the world that God created, mm -hmm. right? And the world now filled with thorns and thistles, as Paul says in Romans eight, groans right under the tragedy of the fall. Mm -hmm. The world, you know, Psalm nineteen, the world. Um, sings with the praises of God and the glory of God and the world groans both both at the same time mm -hmm. and that we have to inhabit that mm -hmm. by the way we do the same thing we're, we're part of this right the world's groaning it's not groaning for its annihilation by the way it's groaning for its redemption and what happens there at the appearance of the sons and daughters of God right so the, the world came to be as it is as 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 the judgment of God shoots right down through the, the relational ecosystem in Genesis 3, and the world is released into, into what it ought to be, glorified, new heavens and new earth, as the same is true of us, right? So you, that's, the, that's the tension we have to inhabit. And I would imagine, you got, I do that all the time. I, I love, I'm so thankful for my life. I hate this. <laughs> Tell me you don't do that, right? You, you want to you grow in maturity in how you do it. But we, we, let, we have to inhabit that tension. It's not, it's not an issue of balance. It's an issue of inhabit, faithfully inhabiting tensions. <clears throat> Go over on the next page, if you would. Um, the world was made, as the title of this, so Christ could be born. I want you to think about this. Um, this is something we probably don't always do well enough. Um, I want to make, we being just like, the, big forms of the Christian tradition. Let's, let's get at this. We speak rightly of the world only, says Bonhoeffer, as we speak rightly of Jesus Christ. If you don't speak rightly about Jesus Christ, you will not speak rightly about, you cannot, cannot. All things were made by him and through him. He holds all things together. He's preeminent in all things. That being the case, all of creation exists and persists because of Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. Reality in Jesus Christ, therefore, entails, for sure, redemption, but it, it's a bigger category than redemption still. It goes right to the reason there is something except God. Why is there anything? Why is there something rather than nothing except God? Because the Father loves the Son, and the fellowship of the Spirit, and the eternal love and joy of God explodes out in the creation of all things, right? That's why all things exist. And so I give you a couple of texts there, but you see that all over the place in Scripture. All things are from the Father, 1 Corinthians, through the Son. All things were made by Him. Nothing that is hasn't been made by Him. Things visible, things invisible, so on and so forth. So Scripture is telling us why things exist in the first place. For the Son, but not just for the pre-incarnate Son, for Jesus Christ, Right? Here, what I want you to think about and grasp is that the incarnation isn't just an afterthought for God or a mere emergency measure to counter-effect sin and evil. Sometimes we think like that. Um, God made the world, right, to think biblically, by Jesus, or by, by the Son, for the Son, through the Son, 
but God never wanted to reveal the Son. <laughs> God never intended for you to know the Son. God's, the, the greatest delight of the Father is the Son, but he never wanted to share the Son with you. That's, a, that's an odd way to think, but sometimes, and we, we probably we wouldn't formalize it that way, but it's just there, right? There, it's at the level of assumptions. It's not the case that all things exist and persist because of the Word and for the Word, but with the intent of God that the eternal Word would never become the incarnate Word. Not the case at all. Now, we want to talk about sin, but that's not the issue, right? God doesn't, as in some traditions, right? I place humanity in the garden. I put them on probation. If they can obey me, they're off probation, and they're fine. Oh, they couldn't. Shoot. I guess now there has to be an incarnation. Right? No, 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 no. <clears throat> now think about this. Some of the things we've been talking about, only the incarnate word reveals the eternal trinity, that God's holy name has always been Father, Son, and Spirit. Where do we learn that? Jesus Christ puts that on our lips, right? Jesus Christ makes God in his fullness known. Was it, is it, was it God's desire not to be known? To create not to be known? No. Only the incarnate word reveals the true measure of humanity that bearing God's image has always meant being fashioned after the God-man. What it means to be human is to bear for your true measure to be God, but your true measure to be God as man, Jesus Christ. You've seen that pretty clearly, right? What's going on? Well, maybe I can, maybe I can say it like this. This is the way Ephesians does it, or one of the ways Ephesians does it. The, the mystery sign um, embedded in um, creation is, and for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the sign, right? Now, we usually say the first proclamation of the gospel is, is Genesis 3, right? Crush the head of the serpent. When Paul in Ephesians 5 is talking about Christ, Christ and his bride, he goes right back to Genesis 2, and he says, this is the sign embedded in creation that is now manifest and revealed the mystery in the new creation. Genesis 2 is before Genesis 3, isn't it? Now, we have to account for Genesis 3. Things go really bad, right? Genesis 2 is before Genesis 3. It's really hard when you're thinking about a human to say, everything about my humanity bears God's image, but apart from the incarnation, there's nothing human about God. So what on earth are we talking about? <clears throat> and only the incarnate word reveals the true meaning of the world, that from the first he has been its origin and ultimate aim. The world was made so that Christ could be born. So he could be Alpha and Omega, that one who calls forth and consummates the cosmos. Now, Look at that last little thing I have there, because we, we want to account for this, and we don't, want to make, we don't want to make light of the cross. That's never a good idea. Or make light of sin. That's never a good idea, but we want to put it in this context. It was established before the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ would be the lamb slain for our salvation. You better believe it. To the glory of God. But this doesn't mean that the sole reason for the incarnation is simply sin and evil. This is what it means or we're getting at what it means. We could say more, but we better not say less than this. God is loath to let sin and evil thwart his eternal plan to create the world so that he can be with us as one of us. It's always been what God has desired. 
Now what happens when we break the world and break ourselves? God so unrelenting in his plan, it means the broken body of Jesus Christ, but he will not relent. The world was made so that Christ could be born so that we could um, live into our human authenticity and the telos for, for our humanity in Jesus Christ. That makes sense? Do you guys want to say anything about that? <clears throat> um, so sometimes I hear theologians like N.T. Wright talk about you know, Israel failing to image, image yeah. God as the sun. Um, and so there's these series of failures. Yeah. And then Jesus, his incarnation is restoring and fulfilling. Yeah. Uh, that vocation to, to, to bear God's image as the Son, and um, and so um, I guess how do you how do you understand when you hear that do alarm bells go off, um, or does that fit with this? Yeah, I think it fits with it in the sense that you know what Jesus is doing in the incarnation is he's recapitulating. I think that's a wonderful way. I don't think that's maybe the way NT does, but you know Irenaeus, uh, he's recapitulating. Israel is is. Israel is, um, that, that seed of Abraham, she has a specific vocation um, to explode to the nations the, salva the salvation of God, right? Israel ultimately, well, fails and fails and fails, right? Jesus Christ is that true son of Israel who fulfills that blessed vocation of Israel. And by doing it, he then has saving significance for the whole world because Israel does. So you see so much of that um, in the Gospels. You know, he's baptized. By the way, he enters into the water of Jordan, which is, by the way, a baptism of repentance. He's not repenting for sins he's committed, but he's saying, I so identify with Israel right now, right? The Father says, I'm so pleased. Where are Israel's leaders? Not living in, right? Off he goes, led by the Spirit into the wilderness. If you are the son of God, right? What's, what's the significance of the wilderness? That's where Israel's tempted and falls and struggles and wanders. Not, not our Lord. Turn these stones into bread. Make manna for yourself. No way. Live with open hands to my father, right? And, and all of this... I will live by every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Father. What is he doing? He's giving an, Adem he's giving an Edenic answer. Mm -hmm. Did God really say? Yes, God really said. Mm -hmm. Are you really the true son of God? Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm, I am recapitulating Israel and humanity. I'm gathering up the generations of myself. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about um, Jesus Christ bringing heaven to bear upon earth, because that's huge for living sacramentally. The transcendent truth and goodness of God opens up in the world through Jesus Christ. All things hold together in him. Heaven and earth? Mm-hmm. Yep. He's preeminent in everything. He is now the first fruits and what he has already accomplished, the first fruits of reconciling all things. Now in Ephesians and Colossians, heaven and earth, he will reconcile in himself, right? He will preeminent, be preeminent. We already have the, the first fruits of that eschatological fulfillment, right? Jesus Christ is bringing heaven to earth. Jesus is the dual citizen of heaven and earth, the twice begotten one. 
begotten eternally of his father. He's begotten in time and bodily by his mother. What he does is he makes the church dual citizens of heaven and earth. Or maybe you can say something like this. Paul, it's all over Paul. You know, our citizenship is in heaven, right? But not in some, you know, by and by type of, when I, when I think about Jesus, the world grows dim. Not that. When I think about Jesus, the world gets clear, right? I'm not just passing by. I was created to be here. I live here, right? But there's a sense of alienation now. There's that. But Jesus brings um, <clears throat> heaven to bear upon earth so that he can penetrate and permeate earth with heaven. That's what, that's what a sacramental vision of the world means, right? Jesus brings heaven to bear upon earth so that he can penetrate and permeate earth with heaven. That means that heaven, right, the, the, that life to be, world without end, isn't just futurology. It's, it's, it's actualized eschatology. We are eschatological people right now. We are enjoying the benefits of heaven now. And in hope, we're saying, oh, Lord, break forth and let us, let us see the full manifestation of what, is it, what we have a foretaste of, right? Now the world becomes clear to us and makes sense to us, apart from which it can't. Jesus Christ ushers his church into that participatory connection, or you might say that holy communion with heaven that right now is profoundly real, profoundly real. So what living on earth should do, if we go rogue, then we say, it's so good here. Well, I have flashes of temptation that way. The, the older I get, the less I do, actually. I get way hungrier for not this. Um, but now we can say, isn't life grand? And if, and if this is a foretaste, right, now you start to open up in hope. Now you start to live into hope. Jesus Christ has come to embed heaven and earth bind heaven and earth together, right? More inhabiting of tensions, though, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a now and not yet. Inaugurated eschatology, not fully completed or fulfilled eschatology, but fut not futurology with no eschatological inauguration. That's horrible. All we, all we'd ever, all we could ever do there is, it's like, the, it's like the sign. You see him on the side of the road. Someday you'll meet God. So you should close with him now believe the gospel, and then get back to the things of the world in which God is from which God is irrelevant. God's irrelevant to all the things of the world, right? And so we ask that, my students ask that question all the time, like, how can you make theology relevant to life? They don't know what a bad question that is. <laughs> and I don't tell them either. They, they learn in time. Um, knowing Jesus Christ is the ground and goal of creation. Think about this a little bit helps us, I'm right at the bottom of this page, duly value, truly enjoy earthly realities. Duly value, duly value, right? <clears throat> truly enjoy. Without that, right, you wouldn't say, if I was an alcoholic, for instance, and you over my house, and I was, you know, knocking down my 28th can of the day, you wouldn't say, wow, Deacon, Deacon John, he really enjoys beer. Boy, is he thirsty. You might say, well, the pathology of idolatry is this. I don't know what else to tap but this. I am thirsty. And the first 24, they haven't done the trick, but all I know is to go back and tap the same empty, vacuous idol again and again and again 
And the more I tap it, the more I tap it, right? You don't, you don't when you look at our culture, right? Like a, a foodie culture or an, a hypersexed culture, you don't say, wow, they're really enjoying themselves. You say they're broken, right? This is the pathology of despair and idolatry. Duly value, truly enjoy earthly realities. Not as ends in themselves, but as means of drawing us deeper into the Christ reality. As Bonhoeffer says, there's one Christ reality. He reveals the world to us. The things of the world are meant to draw us into the Christ reality, not pull us from it and not be irrelevant to it, but to draw us into it. Earthly realities are God-given gifts with the God-intended aim. And this is, this is Shmim on here. You guys might have read him and know him. He says, quote, that knowledge, that knowledge which is communion, and that communion which fulfills itself as true knowledge, knowledge of God, and therefore, and the therefore is important, knowledge of the world. You can't ascend from the world to God. You need the descent of Jesus Christ. Now knowing God, therefore, knowledge of the world, and you can live into a knowledge of the world. Um, say this. <clears throat> what this will do this is just the, the ministry. This is a way that the, if the church can live this in the world, it's just it's so winsome and beautiful, right? It's so winsome and beautiful. You avoid these temptations to, on the one hand, devalue earthly realities as trivial, right? It's a Gnosticism. It's a type of Gnosticism, or to idolize them as ultimate, a type of materialism. We talked about those types of anthropologies, right? Well, here you're talking about those types of cosmologies. What else it does is it exposes the, the, the culture in which we live right now, or at least what secularism has given us. Secularism has, um, has ripped earth from heaven. It's tried to do that, ripped earth from heaven. If you guys know, you know Charles Taylor, didn't that name ring a bell to you guys? If you read Charles Taylor, he's, he's the, you know, doyan of, of studies of secularism. He'd say, if you want to get at it, right, a real pithy definition is what secularism does is it takes all human claims and ends to simply human flourishing. We have no vertical dimension to life anymore. It's all here. It doesn't mean people are atheists. It just means that Christians, to the extent that they're influenced by secularism, will just think therapeutically about religion. The payoffs, uh, how it can adorn your life. Does that make sense? Do things like that. So it changes things. But modern secularism, I like to call it, well, I think Hans Borsman calls it this too, it's, it's flat earth society stuff. It rips heaven from earth, it presses down the vertical dimension of earth, and then what it does is it no longer calls creation creation, it calls creation nature. There's a big difference. And nature then is this neutral, malleable thing. It's not God-ordered. And it's not God enchanted anymore. It's, it's a plaything. Now you can repurpose it, you can rename it, you can reorder it, you can do whatever you want with it. And man, you, you were fully alive last week. You can think of it in that dimension, but you can think of it in a lot of ways. Can you rename and repurpose and reorder human beings? Can you do that to the world? You cannot. You lose the world when you do that. <clears throat> We're going to run out of time, but let me just let me talk about this for just a couple of minutes. Um, as Jesus Christ does this, and as he does it in a fallen world, what he does is he unmasks powers. And this is huge in Colossians. It's actually huge in Pauline thinking all over the place. 
this modern secularism, it's a case in point. If Jesus Christ comes to penetrate earth with heaven, then what he does is he exposes flat earth secularism as something, it's not, it's not neutral. It's not just, oh, you guys, come on. It's pernicious. It's horrible. It's horrible. It destroys everything, right? It's diabolical. It's demonic. It's all those things. But what you see with the powers is Jesus Christ now exposes them. And by the way, only he can. Have you guys ever thought about that? This is true. Like, demons always exist, right? Well, not always, but you know what I mean. Scripture. You read through the Old Testament, you don't see a whole lot of the demonic, right? You don't see a whole lot of the demonic in epistolary literature. Where do you see the demonic in Scripture? Gospels. Why? Because the light of the world exposes unclean spirits, right? So what, is, what does John say? How do you test spirits? You ask him this. Has Jesus Christ come in the flesh? They're exposed for what they are in the proximity of Jesus Christ. Apart from him, pretty hard to discern, right? So when, and that's the mantle you bear as a Christian, right? You come to know Jesus Christ and you say, this is wonderful. But now I see the way I never have. The world is really, right? He exposes the powers. These are forces of darkness in a world made good, right? Rebellious, cosmic rebellion against God, now embedded in cultural, ideological, sociopolitical structures of earthly existence, right? That's where they are. That's where they are. That's, and by the way, you pick them up by cultural contact. It's the cultural catechesis, right, that we have, mundane things of the day. We're, we're liturgical creatures. You pick them up that way. You don't even think about them so much. the world, the flesh, the devil, that we're called to renounce and resist. Let me just give you this, and we'll just talk maybe. Can, can I have like five minutes? Cool. Aaron, is that okay? I, I'll give you this. You might think it's low-hanging fruit, and at, once, at one level it is. Goodness knows, our culture, every, everything's about Nazism and Hitlerism and so on, and it's tiresome. But now I really want to talk about this, because there's, a, there's a, someone, by the way, this book's a gem. It's about 80 pages long. It's Hendrikus Burkhoff. It's called Christ and the Powers. It's so good. He's a, he's a Dutchman. <clears throat> he is in school in Berlin, and he's writing about 1938, I think, when he says this. Or in retrospect, he's looking back and he says, no one could withhold himself without utmost effort, right? Proactivity. Um, if, 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 you're, if, you're, if you're asleep at the wheel, you will not avoid this. Mm. Without utmost effort from the grasp these powers had on men's inner and outer life, they acted if they were, as if they were ultimate values, calling for loyalty as if they were the gods of the cosmos, right? He says, man, it was tough to live in, you know, pre-World War II Hitler Germany, watching your friends all around you say, this is awesome. Now we, from a distance, say, how could that be? Well, we have our own issues, right? They'd look, they'd look at us and say, pot, meat, kettle, right? <clears throat> different, different things, maybe, but... So we don't want to do this. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to say, boy, I know a lot of evil exists in the world. So conveniently, it's always everywhere else. And so, you know, assailing other people. Nothing here. He goes on in this book. He says this, and I just want to talk about it for a couple of minutes. Nor should it be difficult for us to perceive today in every realm of life these powers, which, now what do they do? They unify men in separation from God. 
you know how we talk, late modernity, post, whatever you want to call it, post-modernity, we're lacking a meta-narrative. Well, there's, an op there's a few options that are pretty, pretty attractive right now, right? What are they doing? They're galvanizing a narrative of the world, galvanizing unity of humanity over and against God, though. He says, the state, politics, class, social struggles, national interests, public opinion, accepted moralities, ideas of decency, humanity, democracy. Many of these things would say, wow, we're, we're, boy, the arc of history is really swinging toward, you know. These give unity and direction to many lives. Precisely by giving unity and direction, they separate these many lives from the true God. They let us believe that we've found the meaning of existence but what they do is estrange us from true meaning. There's everything, everything to do with what it means that Jesus Christ is. Um, we see and recognize the world in him. We see and recognize the world in all of its goodness in him. We see the world in its fallenness, and we learn what on earth we better set our face to in holy resistance, right? Because you're either transformed in Jesus Christ or you're conformed to the world. There is no, there is no third way there. There's no third way. And the world is, you know, like C.S. Lewis says, if you, if you think the world's not alive, right, it's like walking in a stream up to here, right? You kind of walk along. He said, just stop. You'll feel it, you know, up on the middle of your back. Now try, to, now try to walk back up against it, and you'll see it's pretty powerful. Um, eyes wide open. You, you, in holy love, you press against these things, right? Persistent, pugnacious when you need to be. What do you guys want to say about that? What powers can you name? Because we're, we're called to name the powers, right? You name them. You, you identify them. I'd imagine you named and identified a whole bunch of them last week right here, right? <laughs> you can only do that in Jesus Christ. Time's out. That's all I got for you guys. Unless you want to say something, but, um, which I'm, I love. There you go. Secular, it was secular, the human flourishing. So think about this. Would you say yes to that? Please do. <laughs> it's first John. Yeah. God is love. It's not quite the same thing to say love is God, is it? It's not the same thing. God is love. Love is not God. But look what we're saying here. Love has content and specificity. Look at what we're saying here. Love in any way we want to reorder and redefine it in a world that we've ripped from heaven, um, bears self-authenticating value, and it's always to be affirmed. Now, I'm in Chicago every day, right? You see it in Wheaton, too. But you see these little, you know, we believe love is love. We believe in science. You know what that is? That's, that's the Nicene Creed of the world. That's what it is. 
It's exactly what it is. The world's saying, we're deeply religious people. We have a God, and we're bound together. These things bind us together and give meaning to existence. Um, now, I like science. I don't believe in it. It's a weird way to say it, right? So Arbit's like, do you believe in Wednesday? It's a litmus test. It's a shibboleth. Well, I value science, but I didn't know science was an article of confession. Of course I value science. It too has a Lord, right? If it doesn't have a Lord, then it becomes scientism, which is it just is denatured. It's not even, it can't maintain its integrity. But, but that's it. That's what, that's what the powers look like, right? Um, that's like a Deuteronomy 6. Put them on your doorposts. Pound. None of us put the Nicene Creed in our front yard. The, world's, the world has an orthodoxy and a dogmatism that outstrips the church. Mm-hmm. Lots of times, doesn't it? Binds, us, binds together and gives meaning, but, but, but all the while, right, separates from God and veils meaning. Really good things to think about. When I come in December, I'm going to teach on, um, today's Reformation Day, by the way. Happy Reformation Day. Um, and Bishop Stewart wanted me to do something reformational today, but I didn't want to do it in a day. What I'm going to do is um, I'm going to do a two-part on um, Holy Word and Holy Spirit, Scripture, Word and Scripture. I'm sorry, Word and Spirit. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to use Calvin a lot and just talk about um, how, how, is, how is Scripture sacramental? And how is, how is the, the use of Scripture in the church a sacramental act in terms of preaching? And how does Jesus Christ give himself to us in the power of the Spirit? in the context of handling scripture in the life of the church and so on and so forth. So it'll be fun. <clears throat> what are you thinking, Peter? Well. I hear it all the time. I have to go to faculty workshops, and you hear you hear those types of things all the time. You know, I am a I am a middle-aged white man, so I can't. I'm going to have a hard time um, caring well for my female students or students of different ethnicity. Um, there's something to be said about those types of things, but ultimately, it's it's not true. Um, it's not true in the sense that we have we have a ground of understanding um, that far surpasses that. Right? And so what we're trying to do is make our, 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 our particularities um, the, hermene- the hermeneutical principle. And all we're doing is we're ripping reality to shreds. Um, that, that can't become the lens by which we see things. Those have to be, you can celebrate them, right? Like, so it would be a good thing for us, Peter, if we stopped saying, talking about you know, multiple races and started talking about the human race and then started talking about the gift of, the gift of ethnic distinction which is wonderful, we could celebrate that. Um, but the pattern of scripture is always from the one to the many, from Israel to the nations, from Jesus Christ to all humanity. We try to start with the many, and then we try to get to the one. 
never going to get there. Mm-hmm. Never, never, never going to get there. Um, so, so those things, those things, when they aren't ultimate, and we don't idolize them, then we can actually celebrate them. <coughs> but when when they become ultimate, man, we're we're, we're having a hard time with that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you say that Jesus Christ has a culture? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure. He has a he has a he has a family tree. Jesus could do um, uh, ancestry.com. He has a he has DNA. He has a genetic background. Have you ever thought of this? What are we doing? At, what is one of the things we're doing at the Lord's table as we truly partake in the body and the blood? We're reconstituting our bloodlines. God will never let us make bloodlines idolatrous. Right? We're partaking of that blood. We're not getting a blood, blood transfusion, right? but we're, we're, we're being renewed. Um, so we, we can't make those things ultimate. Allison, you, yeah, that that that's when you live in a culture that's numbing itself. You know, you look at like the, the vision, the the mission statement of Netflix. You should go look at it sometimes. It, it's it's well, it's not it is hilarious. It's heartbreakingly sad, but the the mission statement of Netflix is basically we're here to save the world from boredom and loneliness. Netflix assumes that you're bored, lonely, pathetic, isolated people. And so they're going to put you on a loop with three seconds in between each thing, and you're going to watch videos for 20 hours a day, if you can. <clears throat> but when you're, when you're in a culture that numbs like that, lots of people do that. that that's a way, emotionally, that people, they inflict pain on themselves to feel something. We have a hard time feeling. We need our, we need our feelings to be called back. Um, and especially when you live in a, when a fragmented society, Right, you got to try to get used to the hurt because that's all you know. So you set the bar pretty low, right? In, in my generation, it was who was it? Uh, Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> you probably know them. Right? Oh, from Ohio. Ah, <clears throat> oh, shoot. I'm old. Um, but uh, I, I, I hurt myself today to see if I can still feel. It's the only thing that's real. It's the pain of that. I think ultimately, what you do is. Um, it's, it's, you bring to bear 
Jesus Christ. And by the way, his beauty, his beauty. I think, I think the world longs more than anything right now for beauty, right? The world's having a real hard time with truth. You know, not, not the, the beautiful Jesus devoid of truth, but the beauty of Jesus, the goodness of being with his people. And, and when, this is, this is part of what happens in transformation then. Then you, then you start to, in Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ to the world. So think about the Lord's table, right? This is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. Take, eat. Now, we don't do this, right? Eight, eight, 400, 40-pound loaf. Ellison, this is the body. Take, eat, and like on Thanksgiving Day, go back there and fall asleep. Ellison, this is true food for true hunger. Taste it. You have been satiated. You've been reorientated. Now go into the world, right? And you think sacramentally here at the Lord's table so that you can think sacramentally about the world. Um, Your friends have no capability. Uh, Those are categories and contours they do not yet have. They have to be actually created in them. Um, In the life of the church, at the Lord's table, there. And so, you know, lots of Christians aren't really sacramental. So it's like, it's hard to think sacramentally about the world if you don't think sacramentally about the sacraments. Right? <laughs> Pretty hard to do. You start there. So, I th- so the goal there is for the church to say, come. We, there's something gorgeous here. There's something so beautiful and winsome and life-giving. Mm-hmm. Come from the darkness. And by the way, there's a better narrative to, than self-harm. Right? There's a way better narrative than that. God's way better than that. God means you're good. So come here. And then in the gospel, taste and taste eat and drink, and in eating and drinking, now learn what, what, what the world needs.